0: Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our fourth episode, National Political Correspondent Caitlin Huey-Burns talks with Jamie Harrison and Ray Buckley, two of the candidates for Democratic National Committee Chairman. Then, RealClear Defense Editor David Craig talks to two officials from the Center for a New American Security, Executive Vice President Sean Brimley, and Senior Fellow Lauren Shulman about the changes coming to the Department of Defense. First up, Caitlin Huey-Burns talks with two of the contenders to lead the Democratic Party. Here's her interview with South Carolina Democratic Party Chairman Jamie Harrison. We're
1: talking to Jamie Harrison, the Chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party. Um, and you have, a, you have a different kind of experience than some of the other candidates running. You are actually in charge right now of a state party. And there's been a lot of talk among Democrats about focusing more on uh, state parties and cultivating talent and activism and involvement at the state and local level. So I'm wondering you know, how you can bring that experience to the role of DNC chair. Is that a critical component?
2: Well, oh, I think it is, Caitlin. Listen, uh, there's some tremendous talent and candidates in this in this field. I mean, any of them w- would be very, very good DNC chairs, and 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 so I, I'm proud to be in this field w- with such tremendous people. But I, I often say this uh, when I'm talking groups. Listen, if we were talking about how you get progressive legislation through the House, then I would say yes. Let's go with the the chair of the progressive caucus, Keith Ellison. If we were talking about you know, negotiating trade uh, or, or deals between corporations and trade unions, or, or even uh, you know, one of the things that we have to do is on redistricting. Tom Perez has a tremendous background in doing that. But that's not all that we're talking about in this role for the DNC chair. We are talking about someone who has the experience and the history of building parties, particularly state parties. And so you have to think about, uh, for that skill set, someone who's been doing it on the ground, on the grassroots level, and has been doing it for a number of years, and that's me. I have the experience of working in Washington, D.C. for my time, uh, running the whip operation for the House Democrats, uh, being the executive director for the House Democratic Caucus. But for six years, I've been the chair and vice chair for the South Carolina Democratic Party, rebuilding a party apparatus that was literally broken – and so it, it's uh, it's important that we keep that in mind, keep the job and the skills necessary for the job in mind when making this, this so important decision for our party.
1: You know, obviously South Carolina is, is not a blue state, um, it, and there's an interesting kind of debate going on among Democrats about... You know how to where and how to focus uh, party attention kind of how to take away some of these lessons from the 2016 campaign and there's you know some arguing that um, you know the need to focus on states where uh, Democrats could potentially gain ground you know um, states like North Carolina Colorado already has become part of the the blue uh, wall so to speak but you know Arizona and other states like that, or whether they need to um, go back and get voters who uh, supported Donald Trump back into the democratic fold. Do you think that they can do both at the same time? Is it a one or the other um, debate here? Or what, what do you think about you know where the party should focus uh, its attention yeah. in terms of, of uh, demographics and geography?
2: Well, I don't think it's an either-or debate. And, and when you look at the Republican side, it's never an either-or debate there. Mm. You know, Republicans don't cede any territory to us. It, it, only on the Democratic side will you hear, well, this is a red state, so I don't know if we can win there, so therefore we won't put any investment in, 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 into those states. Republicans don't have those type of conversations. they their conversations about opportunities. So you take a look at Maine, Vermont maryland massachusetts what do they all have in common well they're blue states and you can even add new jersey they're mm-hmm. blue states on the presidential level but they all have republican governors and that's because republicans don't just you know say well because it's a blue state that means we can't win but we have those conversations all the time on the democratic side and we have to stop it we have to go back to the 50 state strategy that Howard Dean implemented uh, in in the 2006 race in preparation for our VO8 race, and start investing in the infrastructure for all of our states. And that means then going into states that Donald Trump won, uh, putting boots on the ground, starting to reconnect with those voters, and then therefore communicating with those voters, giving our candidates an opportunity and a chance to compete. That's what we have to do as a party, and so it, it, it's uh, you know those uh, in our party who think that we just have to focus our energy on this section of the country uh, are, are thinking in, in an old model that we just need to throw away and abandon because this is now uh, you know a, a competition, a, a national competition in every state, and we can't cede any ground or any territory to the republic. You
1: know, one of the things we heard a lot from. Uh, Democrats during the election was how well organized uh, the party was nationally. Um, but since the election, you know, we've heard um, some criticisms of of that. I mean, is the Democratic Party well organized? I mean, what does it is, is there enough communication going on um, with you know all the outside groups involved, the state parties, local entities, and that sort of thing? Is is that there, or what's what's missing here?
2: Well, it's not our, our uh, state party infrastructure over the past eight years has really fallen apart. Um, you know, when we abandoned the fifty state strategy that Howard Dean uh, implemented uh, right shortly after the two thousand eight race, uh, that's and if you take a look at how we fared in the elections, not on not on the presidential level, but on every other levels, you could see that something must have been going on in the states. So in 2008, when uh, President Barack Obama was elected, at that point in time, we controlled the majority of governorships, the majority of state houses, majority of attorney generals. We had control of Congress, and we had the White House. And in eight years, we have lost all of that. And the, the, the thing that changed during that time was we stopped investing heavily in state party infrastructure. We stopped putting full-time staff on the ground in terms of the DNC. We have to get back to that. And the Republicans, on the, other, on, on the other hand, invested in that. They learned from what we did well in 2006 and 2008. And and Priebus, when he got in, into the DNC, he invested in state party infrastructure. He invested in technology. And as a result, the Republicans have gained tremendous ground because of that. We have to go back to that as a party organization. Uh, it's, there are state parties right now – who probably have less than $50,000 cash on hand, uh, just a handful of staff, and in two years from now they have a, either an important governor's race or they have to defend one of the 25 U.S. Senate races that we have on the Democratic side. Uh, you just can't have that type of uh, uh, lack of infrastructure and instability and expect to compete in uh, this day and age. We have to do something better, and we have to do something now.
1: Yeah, on, on the issue of, of fundraising and how much you know these kinds of changes cost, um, there has been a debate, as you know, about you know whether the party should focus on grassroots donations, whether it should abandon uh, you know big donors, and you've been a proponent of you know keeping uh, the the. The current um, you know keeping donations from big donors as well as as cultivating the grassroots, explain why it's important to have this money coming in in other words, explain why it's important not to uh, cut off any kind of sort of, of fundraising
2: Well I believe in an all of the above strategy so in the eight years in which uh, the president was elected, he decided to uh, shut off corporate uh, donations to the DNC and at the same time. Uh, OFA was still alive and well and that's the reason why those resources did not flow to state parties and you know <laughs> you know i i know it's for a lot of folks on, on my side of the aisle that may not be politically uh you know feasible or they might not like it but bottom line is we need to win and and in order to do all of the things that we want in order to enact the Uh, Very, the most progressive platform that we've ever created as a party, we have to have people in charge because otherwise it's just a piece of paper that doesn't really mean anything. And so that means, you know, the years of not investing in state parties and not having the resources to invest in state parties and the resources that we have, we just use for television ads and making a lot of uh, vendors and contractors rich. Those days just have to end. Uh, It's going to take... About 18000000 eighteen million, eighteen to twenty million dollars to really fund state parties at a level of about twelve thousand dollars a month. And the question is, if we decide to cut off a certain segment of funding, a stream of funding, the question is where do we find the replacement? So, where do we find the replacement to do the things that we were already doing? And then, when we, where do we find the additional eighteen to twenty million dollars? to then fund this effort to uh to revitalize state parties Uh, and that's the pragmatic approach that i have and do i believe that we need to have all this money in politics no i don't i I would love to see publicly financed uh elections get rid of money altogether. put it you know put it on uh put a provision on people's tax returns where they can uh, check off to give to each party you know three five a hundred dollars uh, and use that to, to fund elections across the country. That's the ideal for me, but that's not the reality of the situation. Uh, and we cannot unilaterally disarm when the Republicans now control everything. I mean, we are at a deficit, and, we're, and, and so we have to climb out of the hole. And I just don't think you know, when you're trying to climb out of a hole, you decide to uh, throw away one of the ladder options that you have.
1: Part of of climbing out of the hole, Democratic lawmakers have been trying to use uh, Congress right now as a platform uh, of sorts to advance their message, to hold President Trump accountable to hold Republicans accountable. You know the House side very well, but I do want to ask about what you think of uh, Democratic lawmakers on the Senate side, what they're doing right now, trying to um, you know stall confirmation of some of the cabinet nominees. We saw Elizabeth Warren last night uh, on the Senate floor talking about. Uh, uh, Ses- um, Senator Sessions for Attorney General, yep. and of course, was uh, rebuked by Republicans on the Senate floor. Um, what, you know, taken as a whole, what Elizabeth Warren is doing, what other Democratic senators are doing, what is productive for the party about that, or is it?
2: Well, I, I think it's very important uh, that our Democratic members in Congress show that they're fighting back and that they're resisting. You know, never have we seen such a power grab by by an administration that we've seen in just a few short weeks that donald trump has been president never have we seen uh such uh, such appointments of, of people who I mean, you really have to question whether or not uh they're qualified for those positions I mean, Betsy DeVos, outside of the fact that she gave millions of dollars to the republicans in the education space, I don't know if she has more qualifications than I do in terms of being super uh, secretary of, uh, of education. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, and I was a former teacher and worked in a nonprofit, an education-based nonprofit. Uh, it, it's, it, it and it's just a travesty to see what what is happening. And so, a lot of folks are saying, "Well, Democrats need to come to the table." Well, the question is, to come to the table to do what? If the people that we serve and the people that we represent are, are the main course on the table, then no, we're not coming to the table. Uh, if you're talking about, well, compromise with us and you're talking about cutting billions of dollars out of uh, needed programs and what, the compromise is instead of doing a billion, you're going to cut $500 million? No, we're not going to do that because those people are going to suffer as a result. And so uh, it is important that Democrats resist and utilize every tool that they have in their toolkit to stop this, this uh, the agenda of Donald Trump and this rubber stamp Republican Congress. Because you – I actually thought, well, you know, there, there's some, some uh, good-minded Republicans out there who would push back against Donald Trump. But they have had – they've been spineless. I mean they've rubber-stamped every single thing, even the unqualified people for, for many of these positions. And so we can't count on them to actually stand up for the American people. It's important that Democrats do that. And that means utilizing, again, every tool in our toolkit to push back, to stall, to stop uh, this agenda. Uh, you know, three million more Americans voted for Hillary Clinton than, than Donald Trump. So that has to mean something. That means then that there are a lot more people in this country who did, did not want that agenda. Uh, And so we're going to push back and we're going to utilize everything that we have uh, to stop uh, some of those radical, radical measures that are taking place.
1: Yes. Is that the message coming from the, uh, you know, we've seen these spontaneous protests across the country that have really been remarkable in terms of of their energy. Um, and, you know, the, the Women's March, but also the protests surrounding uh, President Trump's immigration order. Um, we've seen a very energized Democratic base that we haven't hadn't seen in November. Um, what, what do you think the takeaway is from that? What are they demanding from these lawmakers? Is it, you know, don't work with Trump under any circumstance. Hold the party line. Is that the way to, to grow the party?
2: Well, I, I think one of the things that you said, you know, energy in the party is, is a necessary thing. Right? You have to have energy. And for the first time in a very, very long time, probably since uh, you know Barack Obama won in 2008, have I seen such energy on the Democratic side uh, and such focus? And I, I think it's important that... Democrats listen to that, see that, and, and build upon it. Uh, because in in order to to regain majorities in, in state houses, to in order uh, governorships, and, and eventually in Congress and the White House, we're going to have to figure out how to tap into that and use that as a resources a, a resource to build. Um, and so you know it's uh, it's uh, it, it, it's. For, for me I mean it's i i I'm very very excited about seeing all of this activism the, the only issue and problem that I have is are we right now as a party and the party is our party infrastructure uh, equipped to handle uh and, and do we have the capacity to handle all of this yeah.
1: and do you that's think that what is? scares me do you think it is
2: I, I don't I don't think so I really don't. As I told you, there's state parties. Mm -hmm. You know, if we had 500 or 1,000 activists that went to state parties today, I don't know if state parties would be able to handle that, um, Mm. to to handle the capacity of that and give those people something to actually do. That's why it is so important, uh, and I'm nervous about this. It's so important for us to get this election done for DNC chair and get somebody in that office who can hit the ground running and making sure that the capacity is there. Because what's going to happen in the next few weeks, next few months, the rallies and all that stuff, people are then then going to shift their focus to not just think about Donald Trump, but what's next? How do we build on this? How do we recruit new uh, people to run for office in in the 2018 cycle? How do we take this activism to push for legislation or push against legislation in state houses and and in Congress? And the state parties and the DNC have to have – uh, the organization to be able to handle that and give direction to these folks, because if they if they can't, then they become disillusioned, and you lose them, and they, you may never get them back. And so that's why it's so important to get this this chair's race done, and to get the right person in there who, who can who can handle that and build the capacity uh, within the party uh, to to focus that energy so that uh, it helps us win
0: elections in 2018. Now, Caitlin talks with New Hampshire Democratic Party Chairman Ray Buckley.
1: Now we're joined by Ray Buckley. He's the New Hampshire Democratic Party chair, also running for a DNC chairman in a race that will be determined next week. Um, so, Chairman, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that you said at a recent DNC forum, talking about the Democratic Party's failure to communicate a positive message. You have said that they focus too much on Trump and that they need to grow up. I wanted to see if you could kind of explain your thinking on that.
3: I think that there was um, a major mistake that was done uh, in assuming that uh, the fact that uh, Donald Trump was is uh, uh, swears and acts inappropriately uh, and is a generally offensive person. Um, I think people understood that and got that. Uh, what, uh, to the, what people wanted to hear uh, was actually Hillary's plan. Uh, Hillary and the Democratic plan for economic success for the working class of America uh, was significantly better than Donald Trump's. Uh, but the television ads, the mail program, uh, was incessant. Uh, and uh, As somebody who... Uh, is from the low uh, working class uh, i understood that there is a lot of anxiety out there there is a lot of concern about people's uh, future uh, their abilities to uh, have their job their job uh, uh, success um, retirement uh, their homes their cars uh, their children's future uh, their children's education Um, and by focusing focusing almost entirely on uh, donald trump uh, swearing and acting inappropriately uh, they never heard what they really are concerned about. Uh, and uh, it gave Donald Trump the opportunity to uh, uh, essentially have a fraudulent campaign uh, where he was talking as if he cared about the working class, um, but because we weren't offering anything, there was nothing they could compare it with. Uh, and uh, now that we're seeing that he really is uh, not uh, focus on the working class, but focus on on the uh, the millionaires and billionaires that supported him.
1: You know, on that note, the, the resistance effort that's kind of popped up ar- around the country in the form of spontaneous protests, we've seen them at airports and various cities um, and elsewhere. Um, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of the resistance effort is focused on Donald Trump and kind of this anti-Trump message. Do you think that's bound to fail then if it's not a positive message? Or is that
3: something different? I believe that we can do multiple things at one time. Uh, I don't think it's an either or. Uh, The grassroots effort that is standing up for the Affordable uh, Care Act is fantastic. Uh, The grassroots effort of of, uh, the Women's March is fantastic. These are all terrific things. Uh, The uh, protests at the airport. Uh, But that should be only one aspect of that. Uh, our message from elected officials is exactly what it is that we would be doing. We can't simply be the party of no. Now, while the Republicans were the party of no, and they seem to um, have uh, had some success with being that and not really offering uh, real specifics. Uh, the fact is, is that um, we are held at a standard uh, that we needed to actually provide uh, uh, real uh, solutions to the problems uh, facing uh, uh, the, the voters of America. Now, you know, there are many things that we needed to do better uh, in uh, 2016. Uh, we needed to address the nominating process and the failures of, of the party to really project the neutrality that it should have done. Uh, we really uh, failed in continuing the 50-state strategy that was uh, created under Governor Howard Dean when he was chair. And uh, we're, in the last eight years, the parties have been uh, left to uh, really wither on the vine. Uh, that has a serious impact in our grassroots organizing and get-out-the-vote operation. Um, uh, I believe that, uh, that there are so many other things that we could be doing. Uh, And all added together, would have made for a very successful 2016.
1: You know, a lot of the things that you're describing um, have been talked about by other Democratic candidates in the race. There's been, um, you know, large agreement, I would say, among uh, yourself and and the other candidates when it comes to what the DNC should do. I'm wondering how you think you can stand out from
3: the pack. Well, as the uh, person who initially originated all of these themes. I'm very pleased uh, that uh, we go to forums and, and uh, uh, my ideas are being utilized by all of the other candidates. I, I uh, am proud of that. I've not offended by that uh, because I think that that is the way that we're going to uh, improve our party. Uh, and uh, I have the plans And anyone could go on to rayfordnc.com and, and see the specific plans that uh, I actually announced in the first week of December. Uh, and, uh, Every candidate that's running for DNC chair has told me that they have uh, read through the plan uh, and understand and appreciate uh, my experience and knowledge of the workings of state parties, grassroots organizing, and how the DNC functions or should function.
1: Do you think that the eventual DNC chairman or woman uh, will be the kind of de facto leader of the Democratic Party?
3: I I think that there are are those who believe that uh, the DNC chair when we're out of office is the uh, prime uh, cheerleader uh, for uh, the Democratic Party and, and their in our efforts and um, I don't think that uh, necessarily that's true. I don't think that the uh, party needs a soloist. I think the party needs an entire chorus. Uh, and uh, I think that there are uh, some terrific elected officials uh, that never get uh, to get on the Sunday shows or do the interviews or uh, get out there and, and speak across the country. Um, I would. Take that as a, a challenge to uh, build our bench by lifting up uh, elected officials, whether on the federal level uh, or the state level. Uh, or local level. Uh, and uh, I think we've got just a, a lot of talent out there that is not being utilized. Um,
1: and I also wanted to ask you a little bit about um, something that President Trump has said recently regarding uh, voter fraud or alleging voter fraud, which we have uh, no evidence of. Uh, he's focused that on New Hampshire, your state. Uh, I'm wondering what, what you make of, of those allegations. And um, as, as someone from the Democratic Party, um, you know, the Democrats and Republicans have uh, voiced concern about uh, Trump's um, uh, alleging of, of voter fraud. But I'm wondering what you, what you think of that or what you would say to respond to that.
3: Well, I find it very unfortunate that uh, Donald Trump uh, has decided to insult the, the integrity of the electoral process in New Hampshire uh, and the citizens of New Hampshire uh, and uh, to have uh, him uh, spread a lie. Uh, along with uh, his assistant, Stephen Miller, uh, who uh, is a blatant lie. Uh, We've got uh, former attorney generals, former Republican State Party chairs, um, current Republican Party leaders, all saying that it's a lie. Uh, These are the sort of uh, stories and myths that were created over 20 years ago. Uh, And uh, there's been no evidence and no no proof uh, over the past 20 years uh, that the lie of buses from Massachusetts is true in any way. Um, it, it's just an absurd, uh, you know, tale that uh, that exists, like the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot. Do
1: you do you think that um, you know claims like that and other controversies that the Trump administration is kind of involved with right now? Um, of course, General Flynn is uh, top of the news this week. Do you think that this has kind of a galvanizing effect among Democrats? Um, in other oh, words, right. you know, it it, it seems that uh, Donald Trump has been. <coughs> It seems that Donald Trump has been able to really animate Democrats in a way that um, Hillary Clinton and even former President Obama weren't able to uh, in the election.
3: I think it's significantly more than the Democratic Party. Um, I think it is the, the population of, of America. Uh, I think that there are uh, a combination of not just Democratic Party activists, uh, but uh, those who are independents, and uh, even some Republicans uh, that uh, stand up and and find uh, his behavior uh, already uh, uh, in office is unacceptable, uh, that lying uh, routinely should not be uh, how uh, a president behaves, Uh, the fact that we've already had uh, one resignation, uh, and we all anticipate that there will be uh, many more throughout uh, his term. Um, this is a man that is wholly uh, unprepared uh, to serve in office, and he is proving it every day.
1: You know, it, Hillary Clinton made, you know, tried to make that case, and it didn't break through. Um, was it because of what you mentioned earlier that there wasn't a positive message coming from Democrats to um, kind of complement that? Um, You know, it seems like everything that Democrats had campaigned against um, is kind of coming to fruition.
3: You're absolutely correct. Uh, The uh, challenge had to be uh, that not only was he unprepared to be president, but we're going to help your family. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that we're going to make sure uh, that uh, the uncertainty and the anxiety that you feel towards the future uh, is going to be addressed uh, and addressed soon and and, uh, create that relationship uh, with the voters um, that uh, would have had that impact that people would have said that uh, it is important uh, to vote uh, not only for uh, a presidential nominee, uh, but for Democrats up and down the ticket.
1: How do you um, think that Bernie Sanders should um, be involved in the rebuilding of the party going forward? I ask because of course he did very well in New Hampshire during the primary. You were supportive of 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 an open primary process, right? Um, I'm wondering kind of how you see his role in terms of uh, shaping the party.
3: Uh, I think that he can be uh, extraordinarily helpful. Uh, he can uh, energize and bring uh, millions of citizens uh, into uh, the Democratic Party. Uh, that will be part of the effort that we're gonna need uh, both uh, in 2017 uh, in Virginia and New Jersey. Uh, and in this elections across the country, but also as we head into 2018 and the critical elections of that year uh, and 2020.
1: And just to, to end, um, of course, next week, uh, DNC members will vote on the next DNC chair. I'm wondering how you think uh, how you think your standing is so far?
3: I think that right now uh, that uh, uh, no candidate uh, is close to having the majority. Uh, I think that uh, there will be a lot of conversations and a lot of, a lot of activity. Uh, and uh, I think members can start deciding uh, relatively soon. Um, I'm hearing from them uh, every day more and more, Uh, but right now uh, there's uh, a good number that uh, have not yet decided.
0: Caitlin will be covering the race for Democratic Party Chairman in Atlanta when the party votes at its February 24th meeting. Finally, David Craig talks with Sean Brimley and Lauren Shulman of the Center for a New American Security about life at the Pentagon.
4: Welcome everyone to the Real Clear Politics podcast. Uh, on behalf of Real Clear Politics, I'm David Craig, editor for Real Clear Defense here at CNAS to discuss the first one hundred days of the Trump administration as it pertains to the Department of Defense. With me today is the Director of Studies, Sean Brimley from CNAS and also Lauren Schulman, also a senior fellow here at CNAS and also uh, a key member of the directorate of studies here at CNAS. I uh, appreciate both of you joining us today to give us your input on the first hundred days uh, of trying to pick apart a puzzle perhaps a Rubik's Cube uh, some might think. Um, so to start off uh, wanted to get your input as to what you think. Matt General Mattis walks in the door we'll cover later what you know some of the intricacies of the bureaucracy are, but what do you think he's really going to be able to do substantively in the first 100 days?
5: Uh, well, thanks for having us. Um, and as you'll see in the course of the podcast, uh, Lauren and I um, rarely disagree, but it's, it's quite <laughs> possible that, that she'll add, add more than I ever could. Um, well, look, I think the first 100 days are key. Uh, it's going to set the broader administration off in certain directions, and we're already sort of seeing this, at least from the president's Twitter account, uh, if nothing else. Um, but I think the core, uh, the core requirements for the Secretary of Defense are going to be, you know, falling in on all the current crises around the world. So getting a sense of what's going on in, in Eastern Europe, in, uh, Persian Gulf, uh, East Asia. Um, doing a lot of the policy reviews that' are going to be necessary to sort of put the administration off in the direction that they want to go you know the president talked about putting uh, establishing safe zones in Syria. The president talked about stopping China from you know quote unquote occupying uh, new islands in the South China Sea. He hasn't said that much about, about Europe in terms of East our Eastern European sort of posture initiatives so we're sending a bunch of tanks and you know troops and planes to the region. Uh, are we going to continue doing that? yes or no uh, so in addition to all of those sort of policy issues, as we'll get to perhaps later, there's all, you know, as the secretary, you're the steward of this two million person organization. And so there's a, there's a big sort of CEO level job there. It's not just policy and, you know, big think issues of, uh, but important nonetheless of war and peace. It's, it's human capital. It's building a team. It's uh, the, the budget cycle, which is super important. Nothing happens at the DOD without significant dollars. So all of these things are going to come at the Secretary and are coming at the Secretary right now. Um, and it's going to be a challenging first 100 days for them to be sure.
6: Yes, uh, when Secretary Mattis walks in the door, uh, he is facing a building that would easily just sort of run away with him over the next several months unless he kind of gets a, gets on top of things in the uh, right away. Um, in terms of the priorities he'll have to implement and when he walks in the door, you'll see the need for him to basically introduce himself to the military and the civilian staff. Um, the need to recruit a team that is going to be able to effectively implement his agenda, or President Trump's agenda. Uh, they need to just kind of get to know what these core processes are in the building from, as Sean said, the planning process, the budget process, the operations going on around the world, and uh, things that have changed in the short time that he's been out of the building. So it's, as much as it's useful to have a Secretary of Defense who spent a lot of time in the military and left as a four-star commander, it's still going to be a fairly intensive um, get-to-know-you, get-to-know-the-building, get-to-know-where-we-are midstream process for the Secretary when he comes in.
4: Perhaps the most major thing coming out of the first 100 days may just be the ISIS strategy which supposedly they've already worked we haven't really seen anything of what that might be
6: well you saw um, President Trump during the campaign say that he wanted his military commanders to offer a new set of Isis options within 30 days of him becoming president and it's clear that DOD is uh, if not already ready will soon be ready to brief those to him in short order at the same time um, I would imagine that uh, Secretary Mattis is probably teeing up an Afghanistan strategy review to get a sense of what the current approach is there Um, the broad. CT strategy, looking at Libya, Syria, Iraq, and the region um, and, and Yemen, as well as Yemen overall. And uh, just a sense of you know, where we are deployed in the world and what kind of risks we're facing in Europe, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. These are likely um, kind of policy posture and strategy reviews that Secretary Mattis, if he's not already launched, will do as part of his uh, defense strategy review over the course of the next several months. Um, So those are, you know, just sort of baseline, gotta do it, um, will likely be driven in some ways by a National Security Council process. At the same time, uh, the new administration owes a budget to the Hill, likely within the next couple of months. probably as early as April, you'll see a new fiscal year budget come in with a Trump's administration stamp on it that, if we're lucky, will be in some way be be shaped by these strategic reviews. Uh, In an ideal world, we'd have a national security strategy process already launching that would set the priorities and interests of this administration. But uh, if tradition holds true, then DOD will sort of lead the charge on that and um, likely be finished with their work ahead of whenever the NSE manages to launch their process.
5: Yeah, and, and just uh, I mean, it, and in the background or in the foreground to all of all this is, you know, the things we, we sort of referenced before. I mean, he doesn't have anybody over there. Uh, there are no, I mean, you know, Bob Work is, is deputy secretary. He'll stay on for at least a couple months, which I think is a godsend. Um, you know, you've got strong joint staff level leadership, but they've nominated no undersecretaries, no assistant secretaries. I don't even think they're bringing in DASDs yet, which don't require Senate confirmation, which theoretically they could have already started. Um, you've got capable people acting in those roles in many cases, but they're still way behind the sort of tr- the transition curve. So that's going to be a huge demand on Mattis, and I think there's all sorts of political dynamics sort of at play. You know, Mattis wants. You know a certain kinds of people and I would expect in, in any scenario that you know presidential transition team you know uh, based in New York for a long period of time now here they maybe have different sets of priorities in terms of who they want so there's a back and forth that's you know, going on moreover uh, he doesn't really have a lot of high-level counterparts other than Tillerson and Pompeo and you know so what does this National Security Council deliberative process look like so far they don't have any deputies to actually come to these deputies meetings. So they're doing everything at the principal level. Are they even having meetings on these key issues at the moment? Who knows? And the other thing that's happening in the foreground is in addition to all these sort of policy reviews and budget cycles, I mean, Mattis needs to get out and establish relationships with counterparts around the world. We see that he wants to go to Asia. Uh, potentially as a, as a first trip, so he's got a pretty intensive travel schedule, and I'm sure he's going to want to visit and and and, and sh- you know have boots on the ground um, in, in in Iraq and also Afghanistan. So it, it, you got to do all of this in the sort of in, in the first hundred days. Um, you know, Laura and I, uh, were, you know, were Democrats and we participated in some of the, some of the, the campaign level stuff, and we had some we touched some of these planning. Uh, um, elements thinking about what a uh, potential Democratic Secretary of Defense would have to do. And so, and having participated in these, in these transition teams in 08 and 09 as well, um, even if you've spent months planning this stuff, and even if you have all these party lists sort of done, it still would have been a crazy uh, first 100 days. My sense from the Trump team is, they hadn't done nearly this kind of level of planning, and so they're really trying to play catch up. So it's gonna be intense for them.
4: It's interesting you bring that up as part as of as, uh, when you mentioned the DASDs, because there's already some reported friction, you know, with Trump's uh, initial nominee for the Secretary of the Army. How much do you think that's playing into it, because if, you know, knowing Mattis the way I do to a certain extent, I think he probably had people in mind for a lot of these positions. In fact, I wonder if perhaps even the Air Force Secretary may have been his suggestion um, How much of a role do you think that's playing into it with competing interests from the transition team from Trump and and Mattis' wishes for who he wants to fill?
6: Yeah, probably quite a bit. Uh, I mean, one thing to point out though is that the tension between the you know White House personnel leads and the transition personnel leads and uh, cabinet secretaries is pretty normal. Um, you saw Secretary Gates when he stayed over in 2009 did not end up having a great deal of say over some of the per- appointments that came in of the Obama administration, and was uh, his office was actually somewhat surprised by some of the service secretary's appointments. So that's normal. But what's abnormal about this situation? is that Mattis, um, you know, in deciding to take this role for uh, President Trump, came in with what we thought was a lot of leverage, that, uh, that Trump was uh, seeking Mattis as his Secretary of Defense, because he thought it would lend him some credibility, that would give him greater depth on his foreign policy and national security team, uh, and that would probably give him a, a greater uh, relationship on the Hill, and a better relationship on the Hill he than he might have otherwise had. So I think a lot of us assumed that Mattis might have come in with a um, a pretty decent veto power over a lot of the appointees that he might be faced with. And that could be uh, the heart of a lot of the struggles back and forth between he and the transition team, um, but as we mentioned before, like that even though there are absolutely very capable career and military acting leads throughout the department, until he manages to get some of his team in place, a lot of these core functions that he really needs to get started on in terms of strategy reviews are gonna be really difficult to actually do without a point person in place.
5: I mean, I'm, I'm personally not anticipating uh, huge, you know, with a Y, huge uh, um, things here because I don't. Th- I, from my, my sense is I don't think President Trump is very inclined to sort of send thousands of troops uh, into Western Iraq mm-hmm. and, and Eastern Syria. Um, yeah, whatever you know, the strategy. Whatever the strategy, it's and so so you know, they'll go. They'll go through some review process. My I anticipate that they'll they'll change things here or there, um, but I don't anticipate an actual huge departure from what I see as a. Relatively successful strategy in terms of air power and special operations forces, and if you look at what ISIS controls now versus what they controlled, you know, 24 months ago, um, we're sort of headed in the right direction. I think the broader, the broader policy question, at least from my perspective, is what is the end game in Syria um, when ISIS starts to sort of truly fall? What does President Trump think about Russia vis-a-vis Assad and what that end game looks like um, in? My, I anticipate that that Secretary Mattis is going to have some views that are probably quite different than than President Trump and, and National Security Advisor Flynn uh, as it pertains to those <laughs> issues. So that that's the thing I'm watching more than are they going to increase or decrease the number of special operations forces by a thousand here or a thousand there. Okay.
6: But on top of that, something that's um, one of the real drivers of a lot of these debates, whether it be Syria, Europe, our presence in Southeast Asia, um, what capabilities that we want to develop, is the budget. And this is the you know, the big question mark, the elephant in the room of what are we going to do about the Budget Control Act. You know The Trump uh, campaign said that they wanted to repeal it, McCain wants to repeal it, everyone wants to repeal it, it's not repealed. So you know, figuring out what a long-term strategy is for that uh, and understanding what our long-term resourcing plan is for the department, it's gonna drive a lot of these questions in a way that people aren't really talking about as much. They tend to separate the two in terms of like, what are we gonna do in Syria? Well, that's a lot, a lot of ways a, res- a resource and a strategy question that we haven't quite addressed yet.
4: You, you know, you brought up a great point. Um, a lot of people, including CNAS, have brought up that He's going to have to attack the budget right almost immediately mm-hmm. because it you know takes several years for that to get implemented. Um, aside from you know the BCA or even the continuing resolutions, um, just establishing a budget and the priorities for the budget are huge and probably maybe internally at least uh, priorities for the for Mattis the Defense Department.
5: Absolutely, it has to be. I mean, one of my. Kirk Campbell, who's a, uh, a senior policy figure around town, um, years ago told me he's like Brimley. You know, the State Department's about policy, and the Pentagon's about budgets and money. Uh, and it's true. You know, spending you know half a trillion plus dollars a year—that's uh, kind of what the Pentagon does, and they do, as you know, on 25, 30 thirty-year sort of acquisition cycles. And uh, just the dynamics of the of the dates are such that. You know, you're really incentivized as an incoming administration to really move on the budget quickly because you want to put your stamp on 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 this budget. Otherwise, you got to wait, you know, other a year. whole nother fiscal year before you can start to put resources against your priorities. And so, uh, it's it's a core part of the calculus, certainly from the Pentagon's perspective. And again, that's part of the reason why I'm I'm, I'm sure that Secretary Mattis. Um, really wanted Secretary Work uh, to stay on, because uh, he provides that kind of continuity, which I think exactly. he's probably appreciating at the moment.
4: So within that, because you got, I think we opened Pandora's box to a, an extent with the budget, because where do you where do you prioritize? We, we obviously, with acquisition, we're decades behind in many ways. Um, you know, some people blame uh, Secretary Gates for what he did with F-22, there's a whole host of, other things probably not fair to lay that all the blame on him for that per se, but sort of emblematic of where we we're at with you know the larger platforms. But then he, you know, Trump's talking about bumping up uh, the size of the military. Mm-hmm. There was an article, this several articles this week, talking about the service chief saying, "Well, you know, slow your roll here a little <laughs> yep. bit. Uh, you know, we're having a difficult time just to maintain the numbers we have." to jump to the numbers that uh, are being suggested would be very difficult. So where within that budget do you think they're going to prioritize I'm sure Mattis is going to let him know shortly that we can't have everything
6: But I think there's a a lot of key questions that they need to address up front, and first of all, is this just this overall resourcing question of like what they're willing to do on the Hill in terms of the Budget Control Act repeal, and what are the levels of uh, budget that we can expect for the next five, uh, five years or so. But within that, um, as you point out, I mean, the service chiefs have already said that if we start to try to grow the force too rapidly, then we may run into a lot of problems in terms of our own personnel readiness issues. And we may not have actually the funding to sustain that over time, so let's be careful before we start going down that path. There's a lot of uh, modernization and acquisition issues that need to be addressed. No matter how much money that we have, um, there's this tendency to assume that if you just add more resources, our problems are solved. But the Army has no modernization plan. The Air Force has a lot of uh, challenging acquisition issues, as well as the Navy. Like even adding in 430 billion more dollars, as McCain wants to do over the next five years, doesn't really solve a lot of that. It just makes a lot of it a little bit easier. So these. The celebration over you know, an enhanced top line shouldn't start too soon, and should focus on some of the key policy questions early, to include what is it we want to do with our military, which Trump, Mattis, McCain, all have very different views on what our role should actually be in the world.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'd butcher the numbers, I don't have them offhand, but I mean, even if um even if you added, you know, 100 billion plus dollars to to the budget over the next sort of five years, you'd still under-resource the current fit up, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I think Bob Work talks about this a lot. So, you know, it's it's sort of this fantasy land to suggest. I mean, there's a lot of talk about building the navy to 355 ships, et cetera. You know, it's they're they're going to really have to dramatically increase the size of the budget in order to address the gap that already exists with the Pentagon's fitup. Um, before we even start talking about what else we're gonna do. And then as Lauren suggests, which is exactly right, I mean, readiness is is the key. I mean, you know, where are we in the world in terms of our posture, in terms of contingencies, in terms of ongoing operations? I mean, yeah, I'd love to add, you know, force structure, um, but I think readiness is probably hell a lot more important. Um, mm-hmm.
3: uh,
5: and, but the problem is, you know, um, from a political perspective, you know, you don't run campaigns on necessarily readiness. It's it's much easier to talk about the numbers of new ships you want to build, yep. uh, the size of the army that you want, the size of the Marine Corps that you want. Um, and I, I mean, I think that that's sort of the reset phase that's going to happen. But. I'm skeptical because I, I'm not detecting any I'm not detecting this kind of discussion even on the outside. It's all about, you know, trying to rapidly uh, meet these these sort of dramatic campaign promises, right. and then in, in, from a broader perspective, yeah. So we want to build the wall. We want to cut taxes. We don't really want to touch entitlement spending. We got to repeal health care. You know, we got to grow the size of the military. And then, you, but, you, but you've got an OMB director nominee who's sort of a uh, a debt hawk, and you've got a, an entire wing of the Republican Party that, that it's not gonna it's not gonna roll over in terms of in, dramatically increasing the, the national debt. So. Um, This gets back to the the question of the BCA and how we're going to do this and I just I you know I can't I can't see a way through this sort of very foggy landscape yet. Um, I don't think anyone can
4: Well, I through all that. I think you brought up a really good point that probably within the budget probably the biggest spending priority is is readiness Um, Mm -hmm. You get a sense in reading all the articles and of course I was a prior military uh, commanders always want to paint a rosy picture, but you have the uh, General theme for the Air Force talking about they don't even have enough pilots. Um, their training obviously isn't where it should be. Some of the accidents the Marine Corps have had, you know, many people are attributing to the lack of uh, flight hours. Um, do you think that'll work its way up from Mattis to the Trump administration as this being sort of the priority, at least immediate priority perhaps, for, for DOD?
6: And I think it has already to some degree that President Trump mentioned the readiness issues in his campaign speeches, whether or not he kind of understands the details of it, I'm not sure. There's probably about 200 experts in the world who fully understand the readiness issues of the Department of Defense. And some of it will be solved by adding more force structure in a way that's an easy political win for him. At the same time though, it's uh, not going to be a quick, or should not be a quick one, rapidly growing the force would ha- have the likelihood of decreasing the quality of the force that we have, and has shown to be something that we can't do, physically cannot do, at the pace that he's kind of committed to over the next several years. So I think those will be tough conversations. I think Mattis is a good person to be able to talk through about how, the, how this really impacts the, the average Marine, the average soldier on the ground in terms of growing the force. Um, But whether or not Trump, uh, Senator McCain and others will have the patience for waiting for that and whether or not they perceive there to be a quick window to actually get something done uh, remains up in the air. And I'm a bit worried that they'll go for the political win uh, without the plan of how to actually make this sustainable over time.
0: Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at RioClearPolitics.com.